Hello, and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com, or wait for it, we are putting this back in with a vengeance, <laughs> urgently and at once, uh, forthwith and with no further delays, we must uh, immediately start putting our questions back into the comment section of my critical Q&A videos. Yes, I am opening that door again. Uh, it was foolish for me to close it. And so I am saying, if you have questions for me that you want me to answer on this show, leave them in the comment section of my Q&A videos, and I will get them and put them into my queue, as well as questions that you send to me by email. Uh, so both routes wide open, uh, no more stops or delays on that. Now, if you start tweeting questions at me or something like that, I'm not sure about that. But if you put them in the comment section of my videos, well, that here's it. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, ease of you guys asking me questions is at the top of that list. Um, but also, of course, there is the factor of YouTube engagement. All right. So we are putting that back in. So um, that's an announcement there that I wanted to make. Also, I needed to tell you guys I don't do this enough, apparently. And this is really, really important. I have another YouTube channel called Critical Clips, and that is a, that posts Monday through Friday. Every single day, um, Monday through Friday, you get a clip from earlier Q&A shows or podcasts or videos that I've done um, from other, as well as, you know, clips of my guests speaking. It's not all just me. And um, those clips are designed to give you one-off answers. Just, oh, I got a quick question or a quick subject or a quick thing I want to know about. Well, here's a clip on it, right? What is a dirty needle? What is an e-meter? What is Scientology? What is L. Ron, you know, who is L. Ron Hubbard? What, uh, what, what is this thing called a missed withhold? You know, what is security checking? All these weird Scientology language and words and stuff. Each one of those questions is answered by an individual video on the Critical Clips channel. So it's meant to give you the fast and dirty answers you want to all the weird Scientology questions you have, or, of course, the other topics that I go on and talk about, including other cults, uh, influence, coercive control, manipulation, thought reform, brainwashing, all of these things that I love getting into and the psychology of it. Nice little bits and sound bites and snippets from my larger content. I know a lot of you guys love the long form shows. I'm not going to stop doing that at all. I think that's the way to go when it comes to talking about the kind of stuff I talk about. But for those little sound bites and bits that that are useful to people and helpful to people on an on an immediate basis, that's what that Critical Clips channel is for. So I have linked it in the description section to this video right below on YouTube. If you're watching on YouTube, there is a little box underneath the video, and it is a description box. And there you'll find in there links to that channel and also, of course, my Patreon and PayPal links if you want to support the channel. And I hope that you do because this channel is very much worth supporting. All right. So there are some um, announcements I needed to make. I hope you guys will check out the awesome podcast that I put up with John Atat yesterday. 
uh, we had a very wide-ranging conversation about all the things I just listed, manipulation, thought reform, uh, mind control, all that kind of stuff, as well as critical thinking and some uh, some fun bits about psychology and sociology and and uh, cults and uh, anyway, all kinds of stuff. So I hope you guys will check that podcast out. And all of those plugs now being met, let us get on with your questions. Tony Cartledge, I wonder if you could tell us more about the pointy end of the truth rundown. I seem to remember you saying that you've both delivered and received it. I want to try and understand what happens when someone actually recants a true fact they've previously expressed. How are they persuaded to profess a new belief that contradicts what they know to be true? Is it all for show and everybody knows that the Church of Scientology is just trying to quell public criticism or opposition? Or are they deadly serious and trying to change the solid foundation of what a person believes? And are there irreparable consequences or do people simply revert to the truth in their mind when there is no longer the same pressure to conform? I find the whole business insidious and very troubling. All right, Tony, thank you very much for this question. And I wish I had... The very few, three or four issues that L. Ron Hubbard wrote or that were written in his name concerning the truth rundown, but they have never, ever leaked out of the church. They are not available anywhere. So all I have is to go off of is my memory of this. And what I can tell you about the pointy end of the truth rundown is that there is um, some indoctrination that occurs as part of it that I thought I'd let you guys in on. And this is a bulletin Hubbard wrote called Dubbin and Delusion. And this basically lays out in, in a single page the basic theory behind why the truth rundown is how it's sold to Scientologists to do. Now, something I have to start with, though, here is remember the truth rundown is almost exclusively for the Sea Org. Very, very few public people in Scientology or even staff members have ever received it. Leah Remini is one. And one person in all the years that I was in the Sea Org in Los Angeles, one public person received it that I knew about. Maybe others did, certainly, but I didn't hear about it. I didn't even know about it or, or had heard anything, much of anything about it until I did the RPF, uh, the Rehabilitation Project Force. And on that program, almost everybody does it. And that means you give it and you receive it. And I delivered it to two different people. Um, and, I, and then I received it myself. Okay. So this dub in and delusion, what is that about? Hubbard took the um, the term dub in from film and from the film industry, where you lay in a new soundtrack over an existing one in order to you know put sounds there that weren't there originally. And Hubbard calls this in the mind. He calls he says that there is a dub in process that occurs where people will fool themselves about their memories or about what happened because. They are trying to rationalize or justify their own moral transgressions or what Hubbard calls overts or overt acts. If you commit an overt in Scientology, you have done a bad thing. You've, you know, if I come up and just punch you in the face, I committed an overt against you. And Hubbard says that when you commit an overt, you have a, you, there's a sequence of events where when you commit an overt against somebody, you then crave what Hubbard calls a motivator. 
something that motivated you to do it. I walk up to you and I punch you in the face for no good reason. I've got no reason whatsoever to do it. You never did anything to me. I, maybe we've never even met. Like, what is this psychotic act, you know, activity? Well, in my mind, in order for me to make it okay that I just walked up and punched you in the face, I have to believe that there was something that motivated me to do that. And that motivator is something you, something the person I punch in the face, something that person did to me or something about them that, that motivates me to do that. And it's not their skin color or their gender or race or any of that. I'm not talking, that's not a motivator. A motivator is as an, an overt you committed against me, right? I find out, okay, for example, maybe out of sight, out of mind, here, you know, uh, let's let's take it out of you and me, and let's say um, Joe and Bill. Okay, so Joe um, sleeps with Bill's wife. <laughs> okay, Bill finds out about it. Now Bill has a motivator. Joe slept with his wife. Now Bill is going to go and punch Joe in the face, and he's got a valid motivator to do it. Okay, but what Hubbard says, what Hubbard insists is always true, is that. If you commit an overt against somebody that was not prompted by a motivator earlier, you'll make one up. 100% of the time, you are going to make one up. You, you have to have a motivator because if you don't, then you know what you did was wrong and evil and unprompted and, and un, you know, it was an unsolicited bad act. And, um, and it doesn't just have to be punching somebody in the face. It can be anything that you think of as a bad act, even... You know, telling lies or rumors about somebody could be an overt against them. Uh, so why'd you do it, right? Well, they, you know, they looked at me funny. Well, looking at you funny is not is hardly much of a motivator, right? But some people will use that and cling to it as their justification for why they had to commit an overt against that person. So Hubbard puts there that this is the reason why this happens and therefore, those motivators, this is called the overt motivator sequence. Now, Hubbard goes further and says that the motivator can be made up and can even be delusional. You can just make up out of nowhere uh, stuff that just never happened, never existed, doesn't have anything to do with reality at all. And if that motivator, if that thing you're coming up with happens to pretty hardcore slime or black PR or give a really bad impression about the target of, of, your, of your crime, right, then you're engaging in black PR, okay, black propaganda, um, rumor mongering, you know, whispering campaigns, telling bad news, spreading discontent, spreading discord, right? In Scientology, this is called spreading and theta, um, you know, propagating false news, fake news, fake information, right? We have lots and lots of terms for this kind of concept because it's, it's kind of common. We do this all the time. But Hubbard puts there that in the Truth Rundown, what you're doing is you're going back and undoing that dub-in, that made-up, those made-up explanations for why you did bad things. So here you are, a Scientology staff member, and you work in the Treasury Division, or let's say one day you're walking by the Treasury Division, 
and the cash box is open and there's some money, there's some cash there and it looks unaccounted for. And you're like, I'm hungry. I got to eat. Go take some money. Right. And then Hubbard says, according to Hubbard, right, you, because you did that, you could then dream up, well, this organization never pays me. They don't pay anybody. Nobody gets paid here. So I had to do it. I had to take the money, right? This is your motivator. And you're making this up. You're dubbing this in. You're, you're inventing this idea. And then you start spreading it around to other people. Oh, you know, this place sucks. They don't pay their staff. Nobody gets paid here. I don't know why anybody would want to work here. I mean, eventually this is what it comes to because you're, you know, you're, you're, you might start smaller, but you know how these things build up. And here you are now spreading all these vicious lies about the organization because of your own transgressions. You stole money and that's what justifies this. This is what justifies that is you're now running around spreading, you know, being a poison pill to the organization because of your overt. Okay. This is how Hubbard explains it. And he says this happens a hundred percent of the time. Now, obviously anybody listening to this is going to see elements of truth in this. We all have guilty consciences, every single one of us. There is not one human being who is pure as the driven snow and never has been. So um, we constantly run into moral confusions and transgressions and issues and problems daily, daily. This is, this is the stuff of living. But Hubbard decided to take this and codify this sort of mechanism that he lays over it called this overt motivator sequence and then further asserts that when you engage in this in these kind of moral transgressions, these overts, you are going to uh, engage in dub in and delusion. And he and he and he goes further and says it has to be a serious overt in order for you to engage in this kind of activity, this level of dub in and delusion. It's not a passing thing. It doesn't happen to every single person every single time. Every time they commit an overt, they go, you know, psychically mad. It's when you commit serious overts. And in Scientology, stealing from an organization is one of the most serious overts you can commit there. I mean, let's remember, Scientology is a money-making scam at its heart. It's all about the money. So Scientology is all about all the details of their money. So if you mess with their money, you mess with those details in any way, even accidentally, they're going to come down on you like a ton of bricks, right? Money is a real big hot topic there in that, in that world. Um, so, okay, so you go, um, how do, so what's going on in the mind of the person? Well, I needed to give you all that information first so you would understand what the indoctrination is. Because every Scientologist buys into this. They accept what I just told you is absolutely true. This always happens. This overt motivator thing always occurs. And when serious overts are being talked about here, uh, are being committed, right? Murder, theft, larceny, graft, extortion. I mean, really serious stuff. Um, embezzlement, theft from the organizations, uh, Hubbard insists that you're going to have this kind of dub in and delusion occur where the person has to justify or rationalize their overt by inventing things that the leaders or the principals of the organization are doing 
that are bad or wrong. And this is why Scientologists buy into this and therefore believe that people like me, Leah, Mike, Tony, etc., are all just complaining bitterly about Scientology because of our own overts. They truly believe that. They think that everything we have to say about the abuses and the trauma we experienced and the suffering that we saw and the financial crimes and all the stuff we talk about, we're just dubbing it in. We're just making it all up out of our crimes, out of because we're it, because we're so um, we're so obsessed with justifying our crimes and not coming clean on them that we have to make up all these excuses and reasons and rationalizations and justifications for why we committed those overts. And, and, and it gets so bad, Hubbard says, that you actually even forget about the overts you committed and you are 1,000% sure that this new reality you've created that you're dubbing in, this delusory reality that you're inventing is true. You're going to believe it. You're absolutely going to believe it, right? And you need the truth run down in order to cut through that and get to the overts and get the person to confess. And by confessing, so once you're indoctrinated, see, here's the thing about the, the, the truth rundown. Let's go right back down to the, the brass tacks of the truth rundown now. Without all of that indoctrination I just gave you, the truth rundown wouldn't work because you wouldn't be in the right frame of mind. It's, it's all about, this is where this mental manipulation is so important. So I have to convince, convince you, L. Ron Hubbard has to convince you that it is your moral transgressions that are behind why you are complaining so bitterly about the organization. And that way, when you confess to your crimes, you're primed mentally, psychologically, to think Oh, that's why I thought David Miscavige beats his staff. That's why I thought the organization was ripping people off. That's why I thought the staff didn't get paid is because of that time I took that money. Oh, and what the person themselves then does because they have to believe that this whole overt motivator sequence and dubbing and delusion is all true, because L. Ron Hubbard can't be wrong in this picture. Remember, we're talking about Scientologists. L. Ron Hubbard's always right. So when so if L. Ron Hubbard's always right, then that means that my memories of what I saw, staff not getting paid, David Miscavige beating up on people, whatever it is that you, you know, that was that you that the person saw or experienced. They then sell themselves on how that was all just delusion. Oh, I just made all that up. I can't believe it. Because they're memories, they're pictures, right? They're, they're just memories. And the person rewrites those memories as delusion. They put a big label on it that says, this never happened. This wasn't true. Or this didn't occur. And they lie to themselves about it. And they go into a kind of enforced denial about what actually happened to them in order to make L. Ron Hubbard real and true and make his words real, right? In order for this whole overt motivator sequence, right? You get it. So I, I think I've explained that pretty thoroughly. So that's that's what's going on in the person's head is they do it to themselves. They, they, they basically enforce 
an incredibly strong level of denial on themselves. And, um, and that's how it works. And I'm just going to check and see here. Oh, yeah. Now, you also asked about whether there were any irreparable consequences to this. Um, or do people simply revert to the truth when it's no longer the group pressure to conform? Um, okay. Uh, no, this is not permanently psychologically damaging. You can walk back from this, but it can be traumatizing. So you might need some help along the way, okay? Um, you know, we got to be careful about this kind of thing because, you know, there's also the other end of the pendulum swing on this is repressed memory syndrome where, you know, all these things that never happened to you are suddenly recovered memories. You don't want to go in that direction too far either. So it really is going to be context specific with each individual as to how they go about approaching, you know, recovery from Scientology. But I do believe this is part of the recovery process is recovering true memories and, and getting rid of or stopping the denial of, you know, the, the nonsense. Okay. So, um, so you've got that. And then as far as, um, you know, people simply reverting to the truth in their minds. Um, that tends to happen once a person gets out of Scientology, as they then are able to start thinking more critically, more freely, more openly, and with more perspective about their past experiences. They're no longer having to wall off or deny whole swaths of their experience because it doesn't conform with what the cult leader says or what the group says needs to be true. When a group is demanding a truth from a person, that is quite a powerful feeling. It is quite a powerful experience. And people conform. They tend in the majority to conform with what the group expects or wants and even sell themselves on what they're conforming to rather than hold on to you know, their own idea of, of what's true or what's real based on their own perceptions. So, so this is already a thing. With the number of mind control or thought reform techniques that are laid in on a person when they're part of a destructive cult, that crap lingers. And, it, and without work on it and really working it over and applying critical thinking, it's not a guarantee that a person's going to recover from that or give those ideas up or stop denying you know, what they're in denial about. They, they might not ever come out of that. So it does take doing the work. Um, but when you get out of that group situation and those pressures are no longer on you to conform, it's, the, the chances are a lot better that you're going to, you know, over time start, start rethinking things. But again, very, very dependent on the individual. Some people are incredibly uncurious about their own past or they come out of a cult trauma experience and they don't want to go anywhere near it. It's painful. It hurts. It's, these are painful memories for them. So it's understandable. Um, again, that's why there are you know, some help or some assistance or some therapy might be in order in those circumstances. So anyway, I hope all that answers that question or at least gives you a little bit more food for thought about what's going on on the Truth Rundown. Nick C. On November 2nd, 2021, hundreds of QAnon supporters of one particularly fringy variety gathered in Dallas at the location where President Kennedy was fatally shot to see his son, JFK Jr., who in real world has been dead since 1999, reveal himself as alive, well, and planning to be the Republican vice presidential candidate for 2024. At 12.30 p.m., 
the time of President Kennedy's shooting, the crowd began to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Why? Who knows? When nothing happened, the crowd slowly began to dissipate, with some people saying that JFK Jr. would appear at the Rolling Stones concert later in the day. What do you think the chances are that a few months down the road, we'll hear, quote-unquote, eyewitness claims that JFK Jr. actually appeared to the crowd that day, possibly in spirit, quote-unquote, whatever that means. Any other thoughts or comments? Hey, Nick, thank you for asking me about this. I kind of started giving a long, involved kind of philosophical answer to this about, you know, belief and the nature of belief and stuff. But I, I think that's just going to put everybody to sleep. I think what I want to say about this is that I, one, I think it's a real shame that we have the phenomena occur where people are so grossly lied to for so long and, and believe it so hard that they fall into believing absurdities like that. Because, of course, as Voltaire said, once you have people believing absurdities like that, atrocities you know, are right around the corner or certainly the potential for them are right there. And that's why I have concern about these things and why I talk about them. Um, you know, when people heard me talking about Trump in 2015, 2016, when he first announced, I got a lot of shit from a lot of people telling me how wrong I was and how off the rails I was and how I, how delusional I was and how a much of a cult member I still was for daring to criticize the great Donald Trump. And, um, and I look now you know, five, six years down the road from what he has inspired and what he did, what he um, uh, inspired others to do, and how QAnon has developed. And of course, I've talked at great length on this channel about QAnon. And um, it is a very dangerous, near radicalized group of, you know, of, of people. And it's just one of many such groups that Trump has inspired. Um, January 6th was the epitome of that. And if you think January 6th was, you know, a, a walk in the park, a, a tourist exhibit, a bunch of people, you know, going and, and touring the Capitol, you have no idea what you're talking about, right? You just, you just buying into a bunch of propaganda and nonsense. The pictures, videos, and, and, and data coming out of January 6th were, it, it was an insurrection. It was an attempt to overthrow the United States government right in Washington, D.C., inspired by and all but ordered by Donald Trump. That happened. I said that kind of thing was going to happen, and I got called names for it. I got insulted for it, right? So I have a big, pretty big chip on my shoulder about that whole thing. And I keep talking about it because I keep thinking, well, I'm just going to keep putting it out there and keep messaging it. And eventually people will catch on, you know, that um, because I, 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 you know, my own morality won't allow me to be silent about it. And so, you know, so here we are. So we end up with this rally. You know, on, on November 2nd down in in uh, in Texas, one of the single stupidest low IQ events that could possibly ever happen. And you go, how is this possible? Well, as I like to say about cults all the time, stupidity ain't part of the picture. Intelligence ain't got nothing to do with it. And I've railed against the stupidity as much as anybody else. But at the end of the day, that's not the thing that's going on. It's about the power of belief. It's about the power, the emotional investment of it. And the other thing I wanted to say about this, 
And something that I don't think many, very many people actually get on board with, but I want to keep putting it out there anyway, because I think this is important too, is you have to understand that people buy into these conspiracy theories or these crazy ideas like Scientology, like QAnon, because their own lives are not satisfactory in some significant way. They are really traumatized. They are really stressed. They are undergoing some incredibly important or significant change in their life, a negative one usually, um, or certainly an unsettling one. This is why college kids get recruited, you know, moving into a new town, going to a new university. They get recruited into cults all the time. It, it's easy. You know, you just, it's like shooting ducks. You know, they just boom, boom, boom. Uh, because they're uncertain, they're, they, they don't know what they're doing, they're unexperienced, they lack critical thinking skills, and the cults, they're just easy prey for cults and, and for controlling narcissist-type figures. So, um, so we see this, this kind of uh, thing, and we've talked about this. We talked about the fact that big change, traumatic, traumatic change, um, trauma, unresolved trauma in a person's life, unresolved problems or issues, and this includes economic problems and concerns, value problems, moral quandaries and problems. I mean, all of these things are really important to us as human beings. And so when people are going through these traumatic times or experiencing what they think of as, tra as traumatic times, they look to these weird solutions, these weird alternate realities to try to, in a way put themselves into the twilight zone. If, if, if living in Scientology or living in QAnon is like living in the twilight zone, for some people, the twilight zone is better alternative than reality. And that's why they go there. That's why the emotional satisfaction of being in that space, being in that culture, enmeshing them, in, you know, putting themselves into that world that's why they do it. You know, again, it has to do with those emotional needs. And when your life sucks, when you ain't got no money, when your values aren't being agreed upon, when, um, when, it, when you think that the values you were raised with are being betrayed left, right, and center every time you turn on the TV or the radio or you turn on the news and you're being presented a steady diet of bad news N theta, as they say in Scientology, right? Just bad news after bad news after bad news. And everything you think you grew up with and everything you think you fought for if you were in the military is all just being pissed on, right? If you think that's the world, well, that world sucks. I don't want to live in that world. I want a better world. I want a world where my values are reflected, where my ideas are reflected, where my trauma is cared about and being taken care of, where somebody's listening to me. That's how the Trumps of the world get in there, right? It's because the people who are supposed to be doing the work, supposed to be doing their jobs, don't. You know, and we've had many, 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 many years of people being taken advantage of, taken advantage of, taken advantage of. And I'm here, I'm talking about ideology now. I'm talking about, you know, American politics. I'm talking about the American economy. I'm talking about from the point of view of Americans, lots of different Americans. There's lots of different points of view. But from these point of view of the QAnon people, the Trump supporting people, right, they are coming at this from a lot of different perspectives and personal betrayal and trauma is one of them. And I'm I'm just trying to point that out. 
you you can talk to me and I've definitely talked about the you know the racism and the misogyny and the the, the neo-nazis and the 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 crazy nonsense that that is part of that but it's not all of it that's that those words don't encapsulate all of what's going on with QAnon or with Trump supporters not by a long shot right it's not all just racism or misogyny or or neo-nazis you know there's a lot more to it and at the bottom of it is that basic sense that society and reality itself has kind of betrayed these folks and they need to find a reality that they can follow that gives them some hope gives them some desire to keep going and have something to look forward to even i mean it's weird but if you can kind of get where i'm coming from I'm just trying to explain what's going on in their heads, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more, uh, you know, without calling them names <laughs> or too many names. Anyway, I, you know, this isn't, I'm just trying to say that there's, there's more going on here than they're just a bunch of stupid idiots. You asked me for my comments on that. That's what came to mind. I, I hope that's not like too weird or too highbrow or something. It's just a, it's just an, an approach a way of thinking about these people that is not just in, outright insulting um, because, you know, that's kind of what's going on there as far as I can tell deep, deep, deep down inside. And I thought maybe sharing that might might be useful to, to some folks. So there you go. Let's say Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk decided they wanted to be OTA and they told David Miscavige they will drop $1 billion to get there in six months or as fast as possible. How would Scientology accommodate that request? What is the fastest they could get there given unlimited funds? All right, Jonathan, thank you for this question. It's certainly an interesting one. Um, okay, so OT8, of course, is the pinnacle of Scientology right now. It's the highest level you can achieve. You can't go. There is no OT9 or 10 that you can go to. So, uh, so if you want to go from zero to OT8 as quickly as possible, what would it take? Well, Here's the thing about this that I wanted to, that I first wanted to say about Scientology and about sort of the, the the structure of the con, because let's remember it is a con. OTA it's a fantasy, it's a delusion. All of this stuff is so. One very important thing about this thing, sorry, is that it is supposed to take a long time, because the longer the runway is for you as a Scientologist the more opportunities there are to bleed you of your money. And the longer you'll be giving Scientology money, the longer you invest in it, the longer we, the more money we can get out of you. So Scientology as an institution is not particularly incentivized to try to speed that process up. And if somebody comes along who's a whale, who's got real money to spend, well, Scientology is going to want to drag that guy's experience out or that woman's experience out for as long as possible. So they're going to go to all kinds of lengths to make it look like they're speeding things along. And in some respects, they will. When it comes to the classwork, they will, because that's cheap. Nobody cares about the classes. In terms of the viability of Scientology, the training is not where they make their money. It's on the auditing. So they'll get you through the classwork quickly enough 
you know, paka, 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 let's go, let's go, let's go, have you in the classroom for 12 hours a day, you know, they'll supervise you on that schedule and they'll, they'll get you through the training. But when it comes to the auditing, the objective processes, for example, are supposed to be run for hundreds of hours. And there's no shortcutting that. OPPRO by dupe, opening procedure by duplication, is just one process that is that is dictated to be run for a minimum of 25 hours, at least, at least according to some of the issues on it. I don't know if that's how David Miscavige is ordering it be done these days because the guy makes so many changes. It's a little hard to keep up. But those objective processes are, you know, the touching the walls, picking up bottles and books and crap like that. That, that kind of processing, you're going to be invested in that for a few hundred hours, no matter who you are. And then you're going to have the lower grades to do, and those go pretty quick. Miscavige kind of shortened those things up to make them taka, 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 so people can get onto the OT levels. But OT 1, 2, and 3, uh, once you do all the training and all the various things for that, and then you're going to solo audit on OT 1, 2, and 3, that's going to be a couple months, no matter how you try to speed it up. And then OT4 and 5 are delivered to you. You could get OT4 and OT5 delivered to you in about a month. Easy. You know, uh, full, 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 full time, maybe faster than that. But it tends, it, the, the sessions tend to get a lot shorter. I want you to remember, remember, we talked about this, but it's been a while. As you go up the bridge, the amount of time you're in an auditing session on average is significantly less, which is why when you get up to the level of OT7 where you're solo auditing, um, you're giving yourself three to five, six sessions a day. And each of those sessions might be about five minutes long. It takes you longer to set it up than it does to actually run the session. So, um, so that's also part of the process, okay? So as to um, you know how, how quickly you could bang somebody all the way up to OT8, it's going to take years. No matter how quickly you want it to happen, OT7 never takes months. OT7 is always a years-long experience. OT6 is months, right? All these things just take time and they add up. And there is a lot of books you got to read. There are a lot of books you ought to read. You got a lot of lectures you're going to have to listen to. You don't have to listen to all of them. You don't have to read all the books. But they're going to make you read an awful lot of them. And even if you bang out a book a night, you know, that's a month of reading all of Hubbard's books and then all the pamphlets and brochures and all the other crap you got to do. And then the classwork you have to do, all the exercises and drills. So basically, it's built into the framework of Scientology that you're going to be there for years and years, preferably decades. <laughs> Okay, and that's kind of how the timing of Scientology works out. Samuel Millerick. Given that Hubbard isn't regarded as a prophet, but rather someone who developed the tech using scientific research, would it be possible for anyone to continue his research? If it is considered to be science, surely it could be further advanced. If either Miscavige or someone else was to announce that he had done a load of independent research into Scientology tech and made a load of new advances... How would Scientologists react? As I understand it, all changes so far have been done with the justification that they are just what Hubbard intended, but could the church instead alter things by simply saying they had continued to further advance the tech? 
Hey, Samuel, thank you very much for this question. And I'm actually going to try to read from the scriptures here to give you an answer direct from L. Ron Hubbard, because um, there's a couple points I want you to get from a policy letter L. Ron Hubbard wrote in 1965. And this is arguably the single most important policy letter in all of Scientology. In other words, and a policy letter is the is Hubbard's written rendition of how the organizations are to be run. This is policy within all churches of Scientology everywhere. And keeping Scientology working um, is is pretty hardcore. So I'm going to read a few bits to it of it from from it to you to give you how hardcore it is and and in the and in the effort of doing that uh try to answer your question as well okay so hubbard wrote right at the beginning of keeping scientology working he says neglect of this policy has caused great hardship on staffs has cost countless millions and made it necessary in 1970 to engage in an all out international effort to restore basic Scientology over the world. What? What's this? Within five years after the issue of this policy letter in 1965, with me off the lines, Hubbard, right? With me off the lines, violation had almost destroyed orgs. Quickie grades, quote unquote, entered in and denied gain to tens of thousands of cases. Therefore, actions which neglect or violate this policy letter are high crimes, resulting in very serious justice matters. Okay, so I'm going to paraphrase here. The viability of Scientology and of orgs, will Scientology will keep working only so long as you do your part to keep it working by applying this policy letter. What I say in these pages has always been true. It holds true today. It will still hold true in the year 2000, and it will continue to hold true from there on out. No matter where you are in Scientology, on staff or not, this policy letter has something to do with you. So I think he uses pretty blunt pretty clear language to make it make his point that there is very little in Scientology more important than following this policy letter. So what does he say in this policy letter? Well, quite a bit. And I've actually done a two-part video breaking it down line by line. But let me go a little further here and tell you Okay, points 7, 8, 9, and 10. Hubbard lists out 10 points in this policy letter where Scientology can fail, where Scientology can, can actually be destroyed. And he says set points 7, 8, 9, and 10 are where that could happen. He talks about how Scientology is a very exact technology. It's a body of techniques and methods that you use in order to get it done. And he says that 7, 8, 9, and 10 are hammering out of existence incorrect technology, knocking out incorrect applications, closing the door on any possibility of incorrect technology, and closing the door on incorrect application. And he says 
that seven is done by a few, but is a weak point. Eight is not worked on hard enough. Nine is impeded by the reasonable attitude of the not quite bright. And 10 is seldom done with enough ferocity. So this business of, of hammering out of existence and knocking out incorrect technology Hubbard's talking about here. Well, what's incorrect technology? Well, it's anything that's not Scientology, see? Or it's squirreling Scientology. It's taking Scientology and thinking you can improve upon it. Yeah. That's where I was going with all of this. Hubbard says that, and he gives various reasons for why people do this. He, he, he talked about the not too bright. He says the not too bright have a bad point on the button self-importance. In other words, they're very self-important. And the lower their IQ, the more they're shut off from the fruits of observation. And he says, here's where the answer to your question comes in. In all the years I have been engaged in research, this is L. Ron Hubbard talking, in all the years I've been engaged in research, I have kept my comm lines wide open for research data. Okay, so his communication lines, his, his ability to receive information. I once had the idea that a group could evolve truth. A third of a century has thoroughly disabused me of that idea. Willing as I was to accept suggestions and data, only a handful of suggestions, less than 20, had long-run value, and none were major or basic. And when I did accept major or basic suggestions and use them, we went astray and I repented and eventually had to eat crow. On the other hand, there have been thousands and thousands of suggestions and writings, which if accepted and acted upon, would have resulted in the complete destruction of all our work, as well as the sanity of PCs. So I know what a group of people will do and how insane they will go in accepting unworkable technology. By actual record, the percentages are about 20 to 100,000 that a group of human beings will dream up bad technology to destroy good technology. As we could have gotten along without suggestions, then we had better steal ourselves to continue to do so now that we have made it. This point will, of course, be attacked as unpopular, egotistical, and undemocratic. It very well may be. But it is also a survival point. Our technology has not been discovered by a group. True, if the group had not supported me in many ways, I could not have discovered it either. But it remains that if in its formative stages it was not discovered by a group, then group efforts, one can safely assume, will not add to it or successfully alter it in the future. Okay? So that is keeping Scientology working. And that is the answer to your question and L. Ron Hubbard's own words. I don't know if I need to go into a lot more detail about that, but let me just tell you that Scientologists take that very seriously. And that is the reason why David Miscavige has to align all of his changes to L. Ron Hubbard and what he wanted in the first place, because he'll never, ever be able to get away with saying, I came up with this, and I'm giving it to you guys to add to the body of L. Ron Hubbard's technology, that that cannot be. Dogmatically speaking, that's an impossibility. There you go.
Steve Wood. It takes years to finish OT7. You do this by yourself with no real involvement on a daily basis by Scientology. Therefore, why does it take this long and why can't you finish in two months? Who is to say you finished it? As we all know, it's all a bunch of nonsense except for those who are doing it. But why can't you say after two months, right, I'm finished. Bring on OT8. You pay all this money and do everything yourself. I mean, if that isn't pulling the wool over one's eyes, so to speak, I don't know what is. All right, Steve, thank you very much for this question. Basically, what I want to say here is I tried to, in my last couple questions, get across the idea of indoctrination and the, the, the importance of the indoctrination that occurs in Scientology. It's not just about um, going into auditing sessions and getting your dopamine hits and becoming, you know, somehow weirdly addicted to that. And, you know, you subscribe to all this nonsense and you know it's all nonsense, but you put up with it anyway because you really want that dopamine hit. That's, if that's your picture of Scientology, and I'm not saying it is, Steve, but I'm just talking in general here, it's off. It's way off, okay? Scientologists feel very strongly that they have very good reasons to believe what they believe. Now, you don't agree with those reasons, but the truth of the matter is you don't actually know all those reasons either because I can't tell you all of them in this kind of format of a show. I mean, it's, I've, I've produced thousands of hours of content trying to get across the full Scientology experience. It's intense. There's a lot to it. And the reason I'm answering this question this way is because I'm trying to get across that you know, you ask a question like, well, how do these idiots just sit in a room, you know, by themselves, fooling themselves all this time? And I'm like, well, you have to understand that there are hours and hours and hours of indoctrination leading up to that point where this person who's auditing on OT7 specifically now doesn't doesn't believe they're not they're not in a race to get through the level. They want to do the level as thoroughly, as fully, as completely as they can because they've been sold on the idea that there are thousands upon thousands of bodiless souls connected to them spiritually, tied together. They're all clustered together. And it's their duty. It's their moral obligation to get those beings free, to free them up, to let them go, to liberate them, exorcise them, as we say. And that's the job on OT7. And it's thought of as a job. It's something that they go in with the, with the uh, sleeves rolled up and the, the hammer in hands, and here we go, and we're going to get to it. And I talked to lots of OT7s who were on the level over the years, and a bunch of them were just sick and tired of being on it, but they knew they needed to get in there and get it done because it was a slugs fest and they were going to get through it. And they had wins and gains. Every single session has to have the little win, but, you know, it could be a real slug fest for them, but they were determined to get through it. And Whatever, see, here's the thing. I never did the level either, so I don't even know all the indoctrination they received. But having read everything I have read and experienced everything I have experienced, I have a pretty good idea. 
And it's intense, man. I mean, they are really, the weight of the world is on these people's shoulders. And they really think that they are carrying that burden. And that they are daily undoing that burden by lightening their load, by freeing or liberating these spiritual entities. And and like I said, there's supposed to be thousands upon thousands of these things. And um, and that's and that's the main part of OT7. There might be other considerations to it that I'm not even aware of because I didn't do the level, but I know that much is is absolutely true. So um, so it's mostly, you know, it's a matter of um, of really trying to slough it, you know, slug it, slug fest it through. But there's another point here. You mentioned in the question that, you know, they're totally out of touch with Scientology and they're not. People who audit on OT7 are keeping worksheets of their auditing, and those worksheets are sent to a case supervisor, and the case supervisor does review those and does give the person instructions as to what to do if necessary on the level. So it's not totally hands-off when they're doing the level. They are keeping records of what they're doing, and those records do go in a folder, and that folder does go and get looked at by somebody I don't think it's on a it's not on a daily basis that that happens because they're auditing remote from an org. So I don't know. I don't think they mail it in. I'm not really sure how the administration on that works now that I think about it. I'd have to remind myself of that. It's been too long. But um, but they're not totally out of touch. And remember, every six months, they have to go back to flag and report in. And that's when they get checked to see whether they are close to finishing or not. And what they look for is certain things happening with the e-meter, certain things the person's going to say, and stuff like that, too. So it's not just, oh, I'm done. Okay, good, you're done. It doesn't, that's not at all how Scientology works. Just because you say you're done does not mean you're done. So there's a lot more to it than that, which is getting into the kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff that I'd have to go dig up bulletins and stuff to... To, and I'd just bore you with all the minutia anyway, so I'm not going to get into all the details of all that crap. All I'm going to say is that there is a bit more to it than what you put in your question, Steve. And, and maybe if, um, you know, we, how do I want to say this? Um, it's frustrating to try to understand Scientology as an outsider because it is a full world in itself. And if you're not fully enmeshed in that world, it can look really, really weird. Because it is really, really weird, <laughs> you know? But I'm trying to get across the point that when you're in it, that's your normal. And the miracle and tragedy of the human experience is that we can normalize almost anything. So that's what I can say about that. <laughs> All right, let's do some flash answers. Ken Nidzila, is it true that the federal government required Scientology to put disclaimers on e-meters? Are the disclaimers still attached? What do they say? And what do Scientologists think of the disclaimers, if anything? All right, well, I busted out my e-meter for this. Uh, and yes, there is a disclaimer on the bottom of every single e-meter. It is required to be there by law. This was decided upon in the 1960s after the FDA raided Scientology and they had a big court case. And I think it was 1968 or 69 or so when the order came down that this needed to be done in order for e-meters to be used. And the disclaimer says... Uh, 
Uh, by itself, this meter does nothing. It is solely for the guide of ministers of the church in confessionals and pastoral counseling. The electrometer is not medically or scientifically capable of improving the health or bodily function of anyone and is for religious use by students and ministers of the Church of Scientology only. Hubbard, E-Meter, and Scientology are trademarks and service marks owned by RTC and are used with its permission. So there's your E-Meter disclaimer. Oscar Q. Zilch. Do you have any recommendations for unintentionally hilarious slash completely insane Hubbard lectures? Oscar, I'm going to actually punt and say all of them because um, I've been deep diving on a couple of Hubbard's lectures for my thesis, for the research that I'm actually doing for this. And I got to tell you, these things are nuts. I, I, I cannot even approximate the headspace I used to be in where I used to be able to listen to L. Ron Hubbard and think he was talking rationally. The stuff he says is just whack. Now, it's crafty, though. It's clever. And that's that's been the analysis point. But, um, but man, yeah, in terms of uh, unintentionally funny, hilarious, crazy, kind of all of them. Phil Anderson. When Tom Cruise was awarded the Freedom Medal of Valor, when Miscavige called him the most dedicated Scientologist I know... Do you think he really thought that? I've always thought that he knew it would piss off the Sea Org members and he took some sinister delight in it. From what I've heard of COB, he really seems to enjoy being cruel and mocking others. What was yours and those that you knew reactions and what are your thoughts on his motivation? Oh, Phil, I think you're nailing it. I think you're absolutely nailing it. I think Miscavige was getting a good laugh on everybody with that. He got to, and the, and the, and the great thing about it was it was plausibly deniable that he was really trying to insult all the Sea Org. Oh, I didn't mean that. And uh, as though anybody would ever confront him on it, right? He knew they weren't. He knew nobody would. But if they, if it were to come up, it, he'd have some deniability because he's only validating Tom Cruise. He's not insulting anybody. And yet, of course, that's exactly what he's doing. And he did it perfectly because... Um, because it was it was uh, to Tom Cruise, it was it was wonderful to people who didn't receive it that way, like uh, maybe public Scientologists. They thought it was great, and all the staff and all the Sea Org got it in the gut and thought, well, maybe I need to step up my game or something or whatever. I mean, it had all kinds of effects on people. Mostly, visibly, that actually is more people were like, oh my God, I got to work harder. I'm not working as hard as Tom Cruise, but a few of us, I mean, we didn't really talk about it a lot, so I can't say universally how people thought about it in the Sea Org, but I know I had an incredibly negative reaction to it, and I think a lot of other people did too. All right, and that is our show for this week, folks. Thanks for very much for coming around and listening to me gab on here like this. I hope that my answers were informative, entertaining, and educational. And uh, if not, let me know. Again, please put your questions, comments, or feedback in the comment section of this video and let me know what other questions you might have for me or you want me to answer. Thanks again. Talk to you guys later. Bye-bye.